So if you haven't listened to the episode yet, I highly encourage you to do so. A question I've gotten in recent weeks relating to the differences in the protests in Cuba from the protests in Venezuela has to do with the lack of organizational structure and leadership in Cuba's protests. A point that I've heard thrown around is that unlike Cuba, Venezuela has a legitimate opposition to spearhead a movement to end the dictatorship of Nicolas Maduro. A clear advantage, right? Well, what exactly is the state of the opposition movement right now in Venezuela? Two years ago, in January of 2019, when National Assembly leader Juan Guaido was sworn in as the de jure president by order of the Venezuelan constitution, he laid out a clear plan with three equally clear steps. Stopping the usurpation of power by the Maduro dictatorship, allowing a transitional government to step in, and call for free and fair presidential elections to make up for the ones that were clearly rigged by Nicolas Maduro in 2018. Fast forward to today, and according to the latest survey results published in late July by Venezuelan polling firm Meganalysis, over 90% of Venezuela no longer affirmatively supports Juan Guaido. Why? Well, this is only compounded by the fact that the original plan to topple Maduro has now been replaced by a call for something described by Juan Guaido as the National Salvation Agreement, which is the basis for yet another attempt to negotiate with the Maduro regime. After 13 past attempts at negotiating, they have officially started up once again as we speak. Not only that, but the Venezuelan opposition went so far as to recently make the public decision to participate in local and regional elections this November 21st, after having rightfully boycotted past presidential and regional elections that were found to be rigged in favor of the Maduro regime. So with that, we turned our attention to the premise of this incredibly important episode that we are laying out for you today. With over 71% of polled Venezuelans skeptical that anything beneficial will come out of this 14th attempt to negotiate with the Maduro regime, we come to a point where we seriously have to wonder, can we take these local and regional elections seriously? So with the question at hand, should Venezuela's opposition participate in these elections hosted by the Maduro dictatorship? Joining me to discuss on today's episode is Zach Foster, co-host of the Latin Libertarians show for the official Libertarian Party, which airs live on the Libertarian Party Facebook page and YouTube channel, LPTV. 
and is a volunteer with the People's Embassy of Venezuela. This is an incredibly important episode. So this is a call to action. If you know anybody who is a representative in any Western democracy government, please send this episode because they are openly supporting what is an electoral farce. Zach, you probably can explain in much better detail why I have arrived at this premise. So thanks for joining me. Welcome to the State of Venezuela podcast. Thank you very much, Rafael. I'm glad to be here. So Zach, before we get into the premise of today's episode, I got to ask you, man, what exactly is the People's Embassy of Venezuela? That's going to trip a lot of people up who think to themselves, well, wait a minute, don't we already have an embassy here in the United States? What's the well, what's the difference? Well, it's actually, uh, it's the Citizens Embassy of Venezuela, but same difference because it is formed by Venezuelan people to help Venezuelan people. Uh, to be completely honest, when this project was first conceived, it was conceived as a joke, uh, and that was myself and a couple of other Americans um, and a few Venezuelans who had started recently attending to some of the needs of the, the Venezuelan refugees who were getting uh, caught up in ICE detention, migratory detention. We started off just figuring out ways how to help them. We were responding to the fact that the interim government's diplomatic mission in the United States, which was headed by the former Ambassador Carlos Vecchio, they had totally abandoned their people in this country. Even though there's a crisis going on in, in any country in particular at any given time, when citizens of a par particular country are in the United States and they get arrested in migratory detention, it is customary for their embassy to be contacted, and then their embassy will start doing the legal work with the U.S. government as to whether this person stays or they'll be repatriated and making sure that this person's rights are, are being completely respected. This was totally non-existent for the Venezuelan diaspora. Uh, the Venezuelan embassy under the interim government was taking a lot of photos. Carlos Vecchio was doing a lot of photo shoots and doing speeches here and appearances there. But as far as all these families who kept contacting us, simply because we were joking around that we are the citizens embassy and, and we fired Carlos Vecchio because he's useless, once people started contacting us and started asking for help for their cases for real, we knew that we had something. Uh, we had a situation. We, we had people who had some pretty dire needs, and there was absolutely nobody to help them, and they came to us. So we decided to answer the call, and we had to learn what are the actual migratory legal processes, what are the processes in play with ICE detention or whenever the Department of Homeland Security has custody over anybody. What has to be done to protect that person's rights? And then what can be done to protect that person's future? Because a lot of the folks who ended up in ICE detention automatically had deportation orders against them. Unfortunately, the U.S. government has a very uh, hostile policy towards uh, any kind of illegal immigrant. So while illegal immigration itself gets a bad rap because there are so many undocumented persons in this country, Really, the overwhelming majority uh, of uh, undocumented immigrants, as far as I've seen, have not been untouched. It's not like they just crossed the desert and then arrived at their cousin's house somewhere in El Paso, Texas, or somewhere in San Diego, California. Most of them will have ended up detained at some time by Homeland Security. And again, uh, most of those folks still have their embassies to get in touch with when they do get detained. Uh, especially citizens of Mexico. I live in the American Southwest. They have Mexican consulates and Mexican embassies, but these folks had nothing. 
That's how the Citizens Embassy of Venezuela was born. And then over time, in addition to just uh, arguing on behalf of Venezuelans being freed from ICE detention so that they could get uh, a second chance uh, in this country, we also started advancing some public talking points that, in our opinion, the world needed to hear, uh, talking points which truly represented what the Venezuelans were feeling. Every single family or detained person or their relatives or friends or cousins, whoever it was, every person that reached out to us was completely unanimous about the fact that they had tried contacting Carlos Vecchio's embassy and that they were totally ignored or totally abandoned, or they straight up said from the embassy on the phone, there is absolutely nothing that we can do for you. I'm sorry. So we started denouncing uh, Carlos Vecchio again, but this time just for completely abandoning his people and neglecting his duties. So at this point, the Citizens Embassy of Venezuela has been a thing for about a year and eight months. The project is still going strong. Our volunteers, which comprise of Venezuelan exiles and uh, homegrown U.S. citizens, have helped in the liberation of more than 60 Venezuelan refugees from ICE detention. We have uh, prevented several deportations of uh, detainees who were victims of torture back in Venezuela, uh, but they had not gotten a fair hearing at their hearing, and their deportation officer basically was not given a damn until somebody emailed them in English saying, hey, we're not going to let this go. This guy's got legal rights under uh, ACFR sections 208 and 1208A, you know, things like that. Uh, so that that's the Citizens Embassy right there. And when we're not working on behalf of people providing the types of consular services that Vecchio should have been providing, then we are uh, publishing press releases or statements online telling people the Venezuelan people do not agree with more fraudulent elections with the regime. This does not represent them. Juan Guaido does not represent them. Chavismo does not represent them. The entire system in play right now does not represent them. And what these people really want, other than for the government to like stop shooting them, stop starving them, stop weaponizing medicine, is for human rights to be respected, for the economy to be able to operate in peace without everybody having to get paid off all the time, uh, for people to stop getting spied on, and also for the Cuban and Russian soldiers and the Colombian Marxist guerrillas to leave Venezuela. This is what the Venezuelan people want. They don't want any absurd, ridiculous crap like a national salvation agreement. First, um, let me rewind a bit. First of all, I want to commend you guys for doing such a great job and stepping in where unfortunately it seems like the folks over at the Venezuelan embassy in D.C. have not shown up. I think it's a great initiative, and the fact that you guys have been doing this for over a year really speaks to the willpower of the Venezuelan people to compensate for the lack of effort in what should be their representatives across the world. So that's awesome, man. Keep at it. That, that's really, really cool. Thank you. So I want to go back to this national salvation plan that you had pointed out earlier, Zach. It seems like it's a drastic 180 from where we started two years ago. Two years and eight months. Yeah, thank you. I stand corrected, unfortunately. You're right. Two years and eight months. Two years and eight months ago, we were hearing 
And I heard this in person for those of you in the audience. I heard this in person at an event multiple times from representatives of Carlos Vecchio and from Vecchio himself, naming them out. He said in Spanish, usurpation of power, number one, transitional government, number two, and free and fair elections, number three. And now we're here at this national salvation plan that seems like just another excuse for coexistence or cohabitation. So if you could, Zach, walk us through how we got here and what exactly is this national salvation plan? The national salvation agreement at its very core is a national plan for the salvation of the Chavista regime. That really is what it is. So as you said, almost three years ago, the standard line was ending the usurpation transitional government, free and fair elections. I'm going to tell you guys something. And this is something that I had suspected for close to two years now, uh, because during the first half of 2019, we all believed in Juan Guaido. We believed in the transitional government. None of us really liked the fact that they were from parties that uh, are member parties of the Socialist International. We were not completely convinced that that was the correct ideological basis to overthrow a Marxist regime. But nonetheless, the fact that they put themselves forward made all of us want to support them. That's why uh, at a certain point uh, in the beginning of 2019, for example, being a former soldier, being a former military contractor, I actually recruited several companies of American professionals, some of the best of the best, people who had trained Kurdish guerrillas for the war against ISIS and and who, you know people whose graduates from their academy were absolutely kicking ass on the battlefield they were ready to help the interim government train a new Venezuelan army in a allied country and you know from from there uh, the Venezuelans essentially would be able to completely free themselves uh, in case anybody's got any alarm bells in their head there is a process that uh, co military contractors have to follow in order for foreign contracts to be legal. Uh, it's kind of like uh, you know, with the mafia, Don Corleone's got to give his blessing before you go doing business with uh, gangs from other ethnic groups. Uh, and right. that's very similar with Uncle Sam. Before they go and just do something, Uncle Sam's either got to give it the green light or the red light. Uh, so we didn't even get to the point where we're getting ready to give Uncle Sam the green light because first we had to actually make some kind of memorandum of understanding with the interim government. Uh, so immediately, right off the bat, what I'm talking about is not some paramilitary effort. I'm also not talking about, uh, you know, hiring Mike Hoare and a bunch of South African mercenaries to just show up and start, uh, you know, effing stuff up. Uh, it was absolutely nothing like that. We were following the letter of the law in the United States, and we were trying to cooperate with uh, the legitimate and recognized government of a country. So we sent them these proposals, and these these American experts were not only ready to train a new Venezuelan army, but they were ready to attend to the needs of the Venezuelan people. So they already had supply chains that they had worked with in other countries that were ready to plug in um, efforts so that as soon as people you know, cross the border, they could set up uh, food distribution stations, field hospitals, mobile pharmacies, uh, uh, you know, generators to get some of the hospitals uh, running online again. Now, everything that Venezuela needed, these experts were going to provide. And once we sent these proposals to people in the interim government, they looked at us like they were smelling a turd. And here's where we're tying into some recent events. There is a gentleman, well, I'm using the term gentleman loosely, named Freddy Guevara, 
who used to be uh, a National Assemblyman. Now, the National Assembly, the legitimate one that was elected in 2015, doesn't exist anymore. We'll get into that later. However, Assemblyman Guevara made the news because allegedly he was arrested arbitrarily by the regime and then given you know, charges of terrorism and they were keeping him under house arrest. And then he was having uh, arrhythmiatic episodes with his heart and his whole family was worried about his safety. Then the regime frees him from house arrest. He comes out, he does his press conference and Freddie Guevara says, who, by the way, is a member of uh, uh, the ex-president Guaido's party. Freddie Guevara says, we have got to go to elections with the regime. Freddie Guevara was one of the individuals in the interim government who received a proposal from the American experts. And it was more than just one company that was trying to do this. I really presented these guys with a menu of options and contractors that, that could do what Venezuela needed. This was in the spring of 2019, and they didn't want it because even back then, the opposition, excuse me, the false opposition had already decided to go to elections with the regime. Now, let me one up that one real quick. Uh, about a month before I was in contact with Freddie Guevara's people and also with the people of uh, Ambassador uh, Antonio Ecarri, who was Guaido's ambassador to Spain, and Spain did not recognize him uh, because Pedro Sanchez and Pablo Iglesias had already recognized Maduro. Um, both of these guys, they received them like they were smelling serious. Now, before that, there is a friend of mine. His name is Eduardo Bitar, B I T T A R. How would I describe this young man? Uh, I would describe him as the leader of Venezuela's right wing which is almost non-existent. His organization is called Rumbo Libertad, which means the path to liberty. Uh, they've got about 50,000 followers on social media, and that's it. That is the Venezuelan right wing. The Venezuelan right wing, I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm saying it, it just doesn't exist because after the 2002 coups, Hugo Chavez started gutting the opposition parties and putting quiet loyalists in there to prevent any kind of coup or regime change from ever being able to happen again. Now, January 2019, so this is before I've even made contact with Freddy Guevara or uh, Antonio Ecarri or the other people in the interim government. Eduardo Bitar is having a meeting outside of Venezuela. On one side of the table are him, uh, a friend of his, Eduardo Bolsonaro, who was President Bolsonaro's son uh, down in Brazil. The guy's also an assemblyman in Brazil's parliament. One side, it's Bitar, Bolsonaro, and a couple of other uh, Brazilian diplomats. And they're giving the leaders of the G4, uh, the 4G, I mean, the, the four big parties, the leaders of the opposition parties, they were the other side of the table. So Bitar and the Brazilians are giving them their idea for, we're going to give you guys a chunk of land over here in Brazil. You can do whatever you want. You can use that as a base, as a staging area. Whatever logistical support you need, Brazil will absolutely support you because the Maduro regime is absolutely a, a an existential threat for the entire continent. Uh, one of the people there was Henry Ramos Alup. Uh, Julio Borges was also there, who was until recently Juan Guaido's uh, foreign minister. Um, and as a matter of fact, Carlos Vecchio also attended that same meeting. And the leaders of the four big parties told Bitar and Bolsonaro, thank you, that's very nice, but we would like to negotiate with the regime and eventually have elections with Chavismo, blah, 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 you know, the peaceful route. So 
what we have with episodes like the April 30th uprising, uh, episodes like uh, Juan Guaido's house being surrounded by the police, um, and then uh, you know Freddie Guevara being arrested, or a different member of the opposition parties will be arrested, and then they'll all come out and they'll do their press conferences and, and they'll play their violin and talk about how oppressed they are. But really, the evidence strongly indicates that this was a show, because more than two years ago they told me that they wanted to do it peacefully. And which there is no way to do it peacefully against Maduro. I'm sorry. Venezuela is militarily invaded by Cuba, which is the colonial master of the Maduro regime. There are also Russian soldiers there. There are also another five or six thousand Colombian guerrillas there at the very least. It is a militarily invaded country. And they've known this because the Cubans have been there for years. As early as 2017, every once in a while, uh, when the cops or the military was shooting at Venezuelan protesters, the Venezuelan protesters every once in a while would nail some guy with a Molotov cocktail or with a rock to the head, and he would fall down. And then they would, you know, go through his uh, his you know wallet and try to steal his military ID and his riot shield. Well, come to find out, as early as 2017, some of these Venezuelan police officers and Venezuelan soldiers that are falling uh, while they're trying to repress the protesters. Once they search through these guys' IDs and they find their national ID card and their passport, it turns out these guys are Cuban. So now we know there are Cuban soldiers in Venezuela. Many of them, if not all of them, are dressed in Venezuelan uniforms to repress Venezuelans so that Cuba can continue to get oil and gasoline at below market prices from Venezuela, which, according to John Perkins' analysis and confessions of an economic hitman, that is what makes a country a colony. So for these guys, as far as more than two years ago, to have already decided, now nah, we're just going to go to elections with the regime, tells me that all of this, the last two years and eight months, was a show. They wanted to get people's hopes up. They wanted to do this illusion of a huge confrontation, the illusion of trying to instigate regime change, when from the very beginning, their intention was always to cohabitate with the regime. And that is why the National Salvation Agreement is actually an agreement for the salvation of Chavismo, because after all this time pretending to be the interim government, the interim government authorizes this guy, Gerardo Blythe, to go to Mexico and sign away the interim government sovereignty over Venezuela. Remember, it was uh, one of the conditions that Maduro said in order for his people to go to the dialogue table with the opposition, they had to recognize his presidency and his government as the legitimate government of Venezuela. And even after that, Juan Guaido said, yes, absolutely, we're going to the dialogue. This is going to be the best way that we have to recover spaces and democracy. So they send these guys to the dialogue on the left side of the first memorandum of understanding that the two parties signed in Mexico City about a month ago. There's Jorge Rodriguez signing. He's the leader of the regime's fake National Assembly. It is a usurper National Assembly. It is not real. Uh, it's, not, it's not constitutional. But nonetheless, Jorge Rodriguez is signing for the Bolivarian government of Venezuela. And then on the right side of the page, you've got this guy, Gerardo Blyde, whom Guaido gave his blessing to, signing on behalf of the entire opposition, so not the interim government, but the entire Venezuelan opposition 
as the unitary platform of Venezuela, uh, or what's a more uh, updated term, or up, updated translation, the united platform of Venezuela. So the interim government does not exist. And then, you know, this agreement is, all right, we are going to go to elections. Uh, the, the regime is mainly going to be in charge because all the political parties who have registered for elections, all the candidates who have registered for elections, even from the opposition parties, they have all been approved by the National Electoral Council that Maduro appointed. So from the get-go, Chavismo already gets to approve who gets to actually participate in the election from the get-go. Um, and then uh, one of the other objectives that they're talking about is having the United States lift the sanctions. So even though the interim government does not exist because they signed away their sovereignty through Gerardo Blyde, Guaido is still going to keep using that title as long as he can to try and get the United States and the UK and the EU to lift sanctions on the regime so that the kleptocracy can continue. Um, the opposition parties are weaker than they were three years ago. This time last year, the regime actually went in and hijacked opposition parties. So for our American viewers, uh, if you're a Democrat, let's say that Donald Trump uh, came in, uh, he had the FBI arrest, you know, all the leaders of the DNC. And then next thing you know, like Steve Bannon and Stephen Miller and, uh, uh, you know, Roger Stone are all sitting around the table and they say, hi, we're the new DNC. We're the new leaders of the Democratic Party. People would be calling BS just or, or just like the flip side. Imagine Joe Biden sent the military to go arrest the entire RNC. And then next thing you know, Debbie Wasserman Schultz and AOC and Barack Obama are sitting around a table and they say, hi, we're the new Republican National Committee. That is literally what this regime did to all the opposition parties last year. The opposition parties have not course corrected. They have not restored the positions in their organizations that were hijacked. So Guaido and Leopoldo Lopez and Carlos Vecchio, even after the regime kidnapped their parties and the regime's electoral commission are the ones who get to choose who gets to participate in the elections or not. Even after that, Juan Guaido is still coming out and saying, yes, this is what we want. Uh, elections and democracy is the only way to, to recover freedom in Venezuela. We have to do this. Folks, Rafael, there is a difference between failing forward and failing backwards. What Guaido's people are doing right now is failing backwards real hard. And the fact that the opposition has already had 14 dialogues with the regime over time and that each time they come out even weaker than before, that is absolutely absurd. And, and the only reason I can think of is that the regime has either blackmailed all of these people so that they are afraid for their safety and the safety of their families, or the regime has bought them out because Venezuelan politics have been corrupt for decades. Even before Chavez came into power, all he did was make uh, everything 100 times worse. Uh, but yeah, the National Salvation Agreement is an agreement for the national salvation of the regime. The Cuban troops do not have to leave. The Russians don't have to leave. The Colombian guerrillas, Hezbollah, they don't have to leave. Uh, the militia, the Bolivarian militia will still be in charge of food distribution. The Cuban doctors will still be deciding who gets medical treatment and who doesn't. Obviously, people who vote for the regime will get medical treatment. Sometimes everybody else is, is welcome to go die. Um, and then they're just going to lift the sanctions so that the regime can continue with the kleptocracy. 
Uh, it is absolutely insane. It is absolutely absurd. There is absolutely no way that any of the opposition parties are going to come out ahead. They're not going to elect a bunch of people because, again, it's the regime who is in control of the election. And also, my friends, we haven't even gotten into the protectorates. You know what I'm talking about, right, Rafael? I absolutely do. I need to take this uh, opportunity and uh, redirect my attention to the audience. Ladies and gentlemen, what you just heard is quite possibly the best explanation of the state of Venezuela. Forgive me for the forced pun, but that truly <laughs> was the best explanation of the state of Venezuela as is, which is why I'm going to repeat my call to action, folks. If you know anybody who is remotely interested or involved in Latin American politics, whether it be in the think tank, whether it be in the House of Representatives, whether it be in any form of the federal government, anybody who's interested in this process, please send them this episode and this conversation because the information that Zach just provided is crucial for understanding what lies beneath the facade of these so-called negotiations. I'm going to take the liberty of posting on the episode description a glossary from our friends at Caracas Chronicles in order to go ahead and go along with some of the terms that Zach brought up because- Oh, dude, you need a six-volume glossary for this. <laughs> oh, 100%. My friends over at the, at the website, the Caracas Chronicles, they do a great job with uh, breaking down some of this stuff. They have a great glossary that I would encourage you folks to take a look at while you're listening to this episode. Because there are some terms that some folks who are not um, on a day-to-day -day basis on top of these affairs going to understand. So for example, G4. So G4, as Zach had mentioned earlier, that refers to the four parties with the most amount of deputies or lawmakers in what was at one point the democratically elected National Assembly back in 2015. That is AD, that's Acción Democrática, Un Nuevo Tiempo, so A New Time, so democratic action, a new time, those are two. The third one is Voluntad Popular. So that's will of the people. That's the party of Leopoldo Lopez and of Juan Guaido. And Primero Justicia, which is in English, justice first. Of those four parties, three of them, as Zach correctly pointed out, belong to the collective of political parties throughout the world that are known as the Socialist International. The president or the vice president, I'm not sure, Zach, which one, um, of the Socialist International, so the, the organization that represents... Uh, Ramos Salup, He's, he was the VP. Right, vice president. I don't, I don't know if he is now, but he held that title for the longest time. Vice president of Socialista Internacional, so International Socialist, right? Why do we point this out? Because there's this argument or this notion that describes the opposition as everything that Chavismo is not, right? So it's basically just this ideological mix of all these different people, different motivations, and it encompasses all of these political parties that are not the PSUV, which is the Partido Socialista Unidos de Venezuela, the Socialist Party of Venezuela, basically, right? most of which have been declared illegal by Chavismo. What's the problem with these opposition parties? First and foremost, I think this is something that 99% of Venezuelans can agree on. They stay way too long in their uh, leadership positions. 
they talk about wanting to go against those who refuse to relinquish power when they themselves are not only in the same boat, but many of them are now candidates for the very same regional and local elections in November that they had boycotted for so many years. So Zach is 100% right about that. These negotiations in Mexico that are taking place in what is supposed to be a neutral location, which is not... It's not neutral. Not at all. Uh, Let's not forget, for those of you who don't know, AMLO, the the president of of Mexico, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, he's a friend of Nicolas Maduro. Nicolas Maduro showed up and attended his presidential inauguration back when... Uh, Lopez Obrador was first inaugurated. Oh, was that when uh, all the conservative uh, members of the Mexican Senate started shouting out, dictator, dictator? Yes, that is exactly what happened. That's correct. Uh, that was yeah. glorious. And, and it's exactly right. Zach is exactly right in everything that he has said thus far. Uh, the reason I'm laying all the groundwork, folks, is because I know how confusing this can be. But it's important that we get these facts straightened out because they become pertinent to the understanding of what exactly is at stake in these Mexico negotiations and why there seem to be so many unfortunate ulterior motives that are starting to reveal themselves more and more to the point where Venezuelans now can see it for what it is. You had mentioned earlier, Zach, this Freddy Guevara guy. As you mentioned earlier, he gets arbitrarily picked up by state security and they start complaining about his health. They start saying that he's in really, really bad shape. But then all of a sudden, he comes out looking just like... Yeah, better than ever. Yeah, like better than vacation. ever. Looked like he was not in any sense of the word sick, ill, beside himself. All these words that were used to describe his condition when he was in this... Uh, when he's holed up in these... Te- what are supposed to be terrible conditions in the Dehesim. You look at any of the complaints that were submitted to the United Nations or to the International Criminal Court, and they'll tell you about the conditions of prisoners inside of the intelligence directorate of Venezuela. And it's the stuff of nightmares. So for Mm -hmm. him to come out and not only be given his freedom, but to take the place of Carlos Vecchio at the negotiations in Mexico that are going on right now under the premise that he is going to, and I quote, hope that we coexist. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, coexist with the Maduro regime, tells you everything that you need to know about his ulterior motives. He is looking for a job in Uh a future Venezuela where Maduro is still going to be in charge, but the opposition is going to put up a quote-unquote fight in order to satisfy the legitimacy of this regime for the international community. And also, with Vecchio being replaced by Guevara, there are now no longer any representatives of the actual interim government in the opposition dialogue whatsoever. Um, So even though the the interim government signed itself out of existence with that agreement, they still were represented at the table. Now they're not even represented at the table anymore. It's people who have already been threatened by the regime and they decided they're going to save themselves. And now they're saying, yeah, we're going to coexist with the people who just Uh, arrested me and put my life in danger because I have a terrible heart condition. Not only that, let's talk a minute again about the negotiating table. Oh my gosh. Who are the moderators, dude? Who are the moderators? All right. So we got AMLO. You already named them. uh, So they're hosting. AMLO recognized Maduro from the very beginning. And then, yeah, on one side, Russia, dude, they got troops in Venezuela still 
propping Maduro up, and and Russian army Spetsnaz even invaded uh, the 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 indigenous lands. They invaded Pemon lands in Bolivar to help the regime's special forces do whatever shady crap they were doing there. Then there's the Kingdom of Norway, which allegedly is taking the side of the opposition as a moderator. But even they recognize Maduro from the very beginning. So from the from the get go, the negotiation is surrounded with nothing but people who recognize Maduro as a president of Venezuela and no real opposition people. Hugo Chavez very brilliantly started gutting the opposition after he was overthrown, which is why there have been 14 negotiations, 14 dialogues uh, with no results. And and yeah, uh, the last three years were definitely the most horrendous. Uh, the last three years is the period when the most Venezuelans have died preventable deaths, most of them violent, and also when the majority of Venezuelans have decided to leave the country, uh, to the point where it's so bad that the Bolivarian Revolution has actually killed more people than the entire American war in Afghanistan, and in the same amount of time. Wait, hold on. I Can you say that again? I say are you, again, are you... the Bolivarian Revolution has killed more people than the entire American war in Afghanistan, and in the same amount of time. So you're saying that there have been more victims of the Bolivarian Revolution than there were victims of the United States war in Afghanistan? Correct. Uh, the entire American war in Afghanistan was almost a 20 years on the dot effort. Uh, the total deaths from that is in the neighborhood of 280,000. That includes U.S. and NATO coalition troops, Afghan soldiers and police, fallen Taliban, uh, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, civilian deaths. All of them total together is in the neighborhood of 280,000 deaths in 20 years. Meanwhile, in 22 years of the Bolivarian Revolution, we have been able to confirm more than 400,000 violent deaths. And this ain't even getting into all the preventable deaths from starvation, uh, from preventable illnesses, from weaponized medicine. Just violent deaths uh, already surpasses the Afghanistan war in Venezuela and in the same amount of time. And it also leaves out the migration patterns. So Everyone knows, and I think this has been in the news for quite a while, given that the United States just recently exited its position in the war in Afghanistan. We have no more troops on the ground, right? So the war is, quote unquote, officially over. However, the amount of refugees that have left Afghanistan over that 20-year period still, in spite of all of the international recognition that it has received, still pales in comparison to the amount of refugees that have tried everything to escape the Bolivarian Revolution. To give you guys an example, ladies and gentlemen, the numbers are almost double. There have been roughly 3 million Afghanis that have left the country. And then you look at Venezuela, and just this week, the numbers were recently ticked up to 5.7 million. Yeah, we're talking about almost 20% of the population. That's 20% of the population is outside the country to survive. Right, one-fifth. And if that pattern continues, according to the IMF, 10 million, one-third, will have left by the end of next year. So uh -huh. I understand that there's a need to sit down and try and be realistic about how we're going to get out of this, but that does not include what is being done now. Because if you look at what's being done now, Zach, you pointed out something that is very, very accurate and uh, quite frankly, pretty frustrating. 
there is this criminal network that Maduro has constructed, well, his predecessor constructed, and that he has been able to, well... Grow that crap faster than marijuana grows in Humboldt. Exactly. I couldn't have said it better myself, folks. Basically, you have this wide array of criminal activities like illegal mining, drug trafficking, different financial crimes like falsified oil sales, things that we've gone over in past episodes, but it doesn't even scratch the surface with this criminal network of terrorist organizations like the ELN, dissident FARC groups, Hezbollah, financial support from Russia, Cuba, China, Iran. The Sinaloa cartel. The Sinaloans are even recruiting Venezuelan mules and Venezuelan coyotes from Venezuela to work on the U.S.-Mexico border. We know this because we have debriefed some Venezuelan refugees who were extorted by Venezuelan coyotes in northern Mexico. Yeah, I think actually uh, back in August, almost 8,000 Venezuelans were found by Border Patrol agents along the U.S.-Mexico border. That's more than all 14 years for which there have been records that have existed of Venezuelans crossing the border. And since January, there have been nearly 20,000 that have crossed the border illegally. So these, these stories of coyotes of escaping, some of them going through one of the most dangerous borders on the planet, which is that Darien gap between, I believe it's Panama and Colombia. Mm-hmm. It's almost impossible to cross, but they've done it. Think about the desperation because of the heinous human rights abuses that are going on in Venezuela. And one of the partial agreements that this opposition is able to muster with an overbearing criminal enterprise of a regime that clearly has all the leverage, the one thing that they're able to muster is that they agree that the Essequibo of of Guyana belongs to Venezuela. I mean, (laughs) this is an aside. Who cares? With everything that we've talked about, maybe maybe you can explain a little bit better, Zach. Uh, It's like... uh... If we hadn't really purchased Alaska um, and like everybody hadn't decided 150 years ago that Alaska now belongs to the United States. And like today you had America and Canada or America and Russia fighting over who Alaska belongs to. But nobody actually has sent troops to Alaska because it's a mostly inhospitable environment. That right there is the whole drama with the Essequibo territory. So Venezuela and Guyana have been having this little cold war for decades over who this mostly uninhabited territory belongs to. Uh, And yeah, the fact that the biggest and most historic war and death toll in the history of the entire country is going on right now. And, and, and the troop is still militarily invaded, not just by foreign troops, but also by terrorists. And the best that these people can come up with is the Essequibo territory belongs to Venezuela uh, thank you for playing next contestant, please. Exactly. You had all these alternatives that were ignored. If you, if you remember, Zach, there was this symbolic anti-government referendum that was organized last December. Oh, are you talking about, uh, when Juan Guaido had that non-election to proclaim himself interim president for life? <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's one way of looking at it. I think it was it was basically a survey that uh, Venezuelans around the world were able to participate in. Oh, also, as a matter of fact, I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up because I, I was debriefing one of my volunteers 
So the Citizens Embassy is not just an institution in the United States anymore. We have grown in the last couple of months. We have teams now in multiple countries. One of our teams is the Venezuelan Citizens Embassy for Northern Europe. And uh, I was debriefing one of my volunteers who was telling me one of her volunteers went to Belgium. Uh, it wasn't for that particular one, but it was for a very similar one that Guaido did back on July 5th. So the one that happened in December, they had like three really particular pointed questions. It wasn't stuff like, do you want to end the Maduro regime? It was stuff like, do you support President Guaido's efforts to restore freedom in Venezuela? So it wasn't an election, but it was a convocation for people to confirm Juan Guaido. They did that in December uh, for Guaido to be reconfirmed as president. Why? Because the five years for the National Assembly, the legitimate parliament, were up. The parliament was going to expire, and Guaido had failed in his one job. The one job that the Venezuelan constitution actually has for the interim president is to convoke uh, elections, and he did not do that. So instead of having an election, he had pe a few people inside the country and a lot of people outside the country participate in these citizens' assemblies. So back in December, is when the participants basically signed to confirm Guaido as the temp as the interim president, you know, forever un until the usurpation ends. Um, and then they did it again this July to vote without voting for the National Salvation Agreement, which means the opposition parties to have elections with the regime. Anyway, this volunteer of my volunteer went to the thing that the interim government had at their embassy in Brussels on July 5th. And she went there to talk to people from the interim government about the cases of Venezuelans in different European countries who had deportation orders or were getting close to the limit of time that they could legally be in a country without having a visa. And, and they were trying to get help. So they go to this event in Brussels, uh, Guaido's ambassador in that country. Uh, I think her name is Mary Ponte. She gave these people a big old song and dance about, all right, tell you what, sign this paper, you know, print and sign your name and put your details on this paper because we're going to send this letter with all these names to the European Parliament while we talk about the immigration crisis that Venezuelans are facing. So a lot of people who uh, attended that, because this volunteer was not the only one who was there for that reason, a lot of people had some kind of a problem and some kind of a complaint to give to the interim government. So Ambassador Ponte, uh, Guaido's Ambassador Ponte tells them, all right, blah, 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 do this. We'll give it to the European Parliament. When she actually went to see the European Parliament, she handed over that paper to, I think it was Leopoldo Lopez Gil. So that's Leopoldo Lopez's dad who lives in Spain, is a deputy in the EU parliament. So she gives this letter, which was really a, a petition, a political petition, to the EU and says, these are the signatures of people who support President Guaido and people who support the National Salvation Agreement. And when this volunteer was seeing the coverage of this on the news, she was absolutely furious because she did not go to that embassy to go vote without voting for Venezuela to have more elections with the regime. They went for help with their cases and they did not get it. Not only did they not get it, the interim government lied to them to use their data to fraudulently misrepresent public support 
among Venezuelans for the national salvation of Chavismo agreement. That is one of the most unforgivable things, but that's what the interim government has been up to. And the idea that these people are opposition is absurd. The best you could call them is loyal opposition in the very sense that the British Parliament has a loyal opposition uh, in which they might grumble at each other, you know, members of different parties in the actual sessions of Parliament. But at the end of the day, all of them are there to serve Her Majesty the Queen. And there is absolutely no question about that. And everybody still you know, addresses the prime minister with the respect that his office is due. That right there is the relationship that exists between Venezuela's opposition, which I call false opposition, and the regime, which spent a lot of years gutting the real opposition so that all that would be left is these fake parties with people who do absolutely nothing to seriously challenge the regime. And today, thanks to the National Salvation Agreement, they're having a dialogue over going to elections with Chavismo, which we're not even talking about presidential elections. We're just talking about the mayor elections and the governor elections this year. Presidential elections would be in 2024, which means the Venezuelan people still have to put up with another three years of military invasion, weaponized food and medicine shortages the absolutely out-of-control violent crime, the country's intelligence agencies running wild, Chavismo's civilian paramilitary groups uh, running wild. The Venezuelan people have to continue to be victims. They have to continue to bury their relatives because the Chavismo has never given up power. Even when the opposition has won elections against Chavismo fair and square, what do they come out doing? In the case of the 2015 parliamentary elections, where the regime's ruling party absolutely got spanked by the opposition parties. Uh, immediately, they packed the Supreme Court with Chavista loyalists, and then they made this fake parliament called the Constituent Assembly, uh, and they gave themselves all the powers that used to belong to the National Assembly. So starting years ago, four to five years ago, is when the regime already started creating parallel governments to keep itself in power when it loses elections. Then. There were the regional elections, so the mayoralties and the governorships of 2017. The opposition won a number of states. In a couple of cases, the regime straight up nullified the election results. They said, no, so and so of the popular will opposition party did not actually win the election. Uh, the National Electoral Council rules that the PSUV's candidate actually won that election. Or when they let the opposition governor-elects actually take office, immediately the regime nominates a protector. What is a protector? It is in the same context that Oliver Cromwell called himself a protector in England, in the English Civil War. A protector is a warlord. And in the Venezuelan context, whenever an opposition person wins an election, they will nominate a protector. So if somebody wins a governorship, the regime will nominate a protector of that state. And a lot of the state government budget will get diverted away from the opposition administration that actually got elected. And then the protector gets to be the one who controls the budget and decides what gets spent on what infrastructure. But also the protector has weapons. Uh, if the opposition wins a mayoralty in a municipal district, then they will name a protector for that municipal district. If the opposition uh, uh, wins student council, 
at a university in Venezuela, then the regime will name a protector for that university. Now, to make this current, to make it relevant to the current elections, before the false opposition sat down with their masters in the regime about a month ago for the first time in Mexico, Maduro was saying on state TV, hey, if the opposition comes to do this dialogue, I might just abolish the protectorates. What would be the implication of abolishing the protectorates? The implication is if the opposition actually gets people elected, they might actually be able to govern and make some kind of change. And then what happens after the first session in Mexico, after Gerardo Blyde signed the interim government out of existence on behalf of the unitary platform? They swap out Carlos Vecchio for Freddy Guevara, the collaborator. And then Maduro comes out on the TV and he says, actually, I'm not going to abolish the protectorates because where would Venezuela be without the protectorates? Oh, my goodness. Can you just imagine the state of Monagas? What situation they would be in if we had not named a protector for the state of Monagas? No, I cannot abolish this institution. So off the bat, this is the regime doing the same bait and switch that they have always done. This cannot have been a surprise to the opposition parties because the big four opposition parties have been falling for the regime's same old tired tricks for 20 years now. I mean, remember, Hugo Chavez was overthrown for a couple of days 19 years ago. That was the beginning of the dialogues. So after 14 dialogues, the, the idea that any of this is still a surprise to the opposition politicians, I'm sorry. I cannot accept that. It goes against evidence. It goes against logic and reason. And it goes against the behaviors that these criminals continue to blatantly show us on TV. So, yeah, it's a false opposition, dude. Juan Guaido was a show. This last two years and eight months, all of it was a show because the opposition, as I said before, had decided from the very beginning to coexist with the regime, to never really challenge them for power, and to just go to elections. And the reason why that is absolutely infuriating to me, my friends, is because I have paid to bury Venezuelans who did not survive this crisis. And then these SOBs want to come out and tell me and tell all the rest of the Venezuelans that the country has to endure for another three years just to get a shot at maybe electing a president who's not Chavista, but also given the track record of the regime with elections, it is absolutely preposterous. This is not accidental. This is not even people having all kinds of bad luck. This is absolute complicit behavior on behalf of the opposition, which is why they are no longer real opposition. They are the regime's loyal opposition. Most of the Venezuelans repudiate the regime and the oppositions. They repudiate the fake elections that are going to come up. Just like you said, Meg Analysis polled a lot of people to be able to come up with those numbers. So while Venezuelan politics is in the worst state that it's ever been because we're starting to find out that just about everybody is actually part of the regime, there is now a huge chasm between the regime and its loyal opposition and Venezuelans who still have the memory of their relatives who were martyred. Think of all the people who were killed by the regime during the 2014 protests, 2016, 2017, 2019. Think of the, the indigenous people who were slaughtered when in February of 2019, 
while the whole world was distracted by the humanitarian aid convoy at the Colombian border. At the same time, the regime emptied two prisons, armed and uniformed the prisoners, gave them an indoctrination speech, promised them some time off their sentences, and then deployed an army of 3,000 prison convicts, unleashed them to pacify this Indian rebellion. And, and the fact that they sent convoys with automatic rifles to shoot at civilians who were defending themselves with bows and arrows. I'm not talking about some crap that happened in the 1850s, my dude. This happened two years ago. This is still happening today. And the fact that these people are going to go to elections with all of that? No. Venezuelans repudiate this, and now the majority of the people are finally at a point where without this opposition, yeah, you know, the United States is recognizing them right now, but eventually the people will be heard across the world one way or another, and they will be in a better position than they have ever been to win their freedom because now they know that these people who call themselves opposition are not on our side. So for every Venezuelan person who has not given up the struggle, especially the boys and girls in the National Liberation Front of Venezuela, my hat is off to them. They have my undying respect. Likewise. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. The proof is in the pudding. I think it's crystal clear that there are ulterior motives here at play and that if there is any opposition to be had, um, I don't know if it's them anymore. You can look at the comments on their social media. Uh, and you can hear someone like Zach. If you want to keep hearing from Zach and you want to keep up with the Citizens Embassy of Venezuela, Zach, how can our audience keep up with you? Because after everything that they've heard today, I'm sure they're going to want to do so. You can either visit embajadavenezolana.org or venezuelanembassy.org, and that will take you to the website for the Citizens Embassy of Venezuela. We also have a bilingual Twitter account. Uh, people can find it. Uh, what's the key? It is Embajada VS. So for the English speakers, that's E-M-B-A-J-A-D-A-V-E-C. One more time. E-M-B-A-J-A-D-A-V-E-C. Embajada VS. You can find us that way on Twitter. Please, folks. Follow us because we do publish in both languages so that the world can be informed, not just about what people's options are as migrants who potentially have a deportation order against them, not just for people to report to us uh, uh, any people from the regime they, they know who have uh, escaped and absconded themselves into this country. If the person is, is a person from the regime, we will absolutely rat them out to, to homeland security while we fight for the liberation and the freedom of Venezuelan refugees, real refugees. So hell yeah, man. VenezuelanEmbassy.org. Please visit. Awesome. You heard the man, ladies and gentlemen. I love the initiative, man. Thank you so much. Thank you all so much for listening to today's episode. Uh, I would even suggest to go as far as to maybe replay some of what Zach said today because these are um, cold, hard truths and a lot of revelations for some folks who otherwise are not getting the information because the information simply is not getting put out there. But in due time, it will, because as they say in Venezuela, justice arrives late, but it does arrive. So with that, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. Zach, thank you so much for coming up on the show, man. We will definitely have you again for another episode. Thanks for the invite. It's awesome.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the State of Venezuela podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening to the story of Venezuela as much as we enjoyed sharing it. Make sure you subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts to listen to other episodes and follow us on all social media platforms for more engaging content. Don't forget to share the podcast with friends, family, or anyone abroad. Reach out to us with any suggestions for future episodes at stateofvenezuela at gmail.com or just to say hello. We'd love to hear from you. Until then, we'll see you in the next one.